Welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast, where we interview scientists, philosophers, and leading thinkers to discuss the nature of our reality and the impact it has on our daily lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cosmos in You podcast. This is your host, Susanna Scully. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Today, we have a great episode. As our guest, we have Adam Frank, who is a professor of astrophysics and the author of two books, The Constant Fire, Beyond the Science versus Religion Debate, and About Time, Cosmology and Culture at the Twilight of the Big Bang. Adam is also a contributor and co-founder of the NPR blog 13.7 Cosmos and Culture. His writing has also appeared in the New York Times and magazines such as Discover and Scientific American. He studies the processes that shape the formation and death of stars and has become a leading expert on the final stages of evolution for stars like the sun. Adam is a theoretical and computational astrophysicist, and he heads a research group that is developing new tools for for simulating the cosmos. Now, what I found so fascinating about Adam and why I wanted to have him on the show is because he has that really interesting blend of being obviously very credible and knowledgeable and bright um, and passionate about science and astrophysics and has studied it at great length and is obviously very well respected for it. But he also has the other interesting side to him where he opens up, he, he is a uh, he says he is an atheist, um, so he, you know, doesn't believe in, has no no certain God or religion, but he has a contemplative practice, which he talks about in this podcast. And what I appreciate about him is that, number one, that he explains science in such a fun and digestible way. I mean, he is a professor, so that explains. But then he also opens up to what is possible. He does not say absolutely no way. And he also doesn't say, yes, absolutely. It's this way. He's just truly sits in the unknown. And you can tell that he, he relishes in that sense of curiosity, which I really respect. So that's really why I wanted to have him on the show and he did not disappoint. So in this episode, we discuss how science can be a gateway to awe, wonder, and curiosity. I mean, what are better than those feelings? Those are some of my favorite feelings. Um, why Deepak Chopra's interpretation of quantum mechanics pisses him off. Now, I'm a Deepak Chopra fan, but I am open to other discussions. So we talk about that. What his own contemplative practice has taught him about what it means to be in this world. And I say to be in quotes. And finally, his thoughts on the data behind near death experiences. Now, you'll see when we get into this, I wish I had, you know, I've read a lot about near death experiences. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, not anywhere near. Um, so we just skimmed the surface on it, but it is really interesting what he's saying about it. And um, so, anyway, I'm curious to hear what you all of you will think of this. This episode. So let me know after what it brought up for you. Um, you. Tweet me, Facebook, email, whatever it is. I love hearing from all of you. So without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be here this morning. 
Great. Well, what I'd love to do is have you tell, tell us a bit more about your background, what drew you to science. Um, and as I said in our pre-interview, in watching your TED Talk, I loved how you talked about the sense of awe that studying the cosmos has brought to you. So if you could tell us a bit about that to start. Sure. Um, so I'm one of these people who basically never had any choice. You know, I got interested in science when I was five years old. Uh, my dad was a science fiction fan. He was a writer, but he had a lot of uh, those pulp science fiction uh, magazines in his library. You know, these were these old 1960s magazines and they had these covers that had like, you know, paintings or whatever of guys jumping around on, on the moon or, you know, f- uh, flinging off of spaceships. And I just remember at five, I was like five or six, just like staring at those things and just, you know, having my imagination, you know, blow up. So that was it. I never, you know, <laughs> that was, was it. <laughs> any question after that about what I was going to do in life. And then, you know, Astronomy turned into physics for me as I got older. There was a moment, a very powerful experience when my dad, I must have been like maybe nine or eight, and it was a thunderstorm. And my dad, you know, of course, I'm freaking out because of the thunder, you know, big summer thunderstorm. And he explained to me that, well, you know, the thunder was just, and the lightning, you know, were basically electrons flowing through the atmosphere, superheating the atmosphere, making it, you know, uh, explode. And that was so much cooler than the the fear I had mm. that, um you know, the idea that the world was explainable, or at least there were aspects of the world that were knowable yeah. uh, if you worked hard enough, really gripped me. And, uh, you know, it's been that way ever since. I still am so thankful every day that I get to do science because uh, to me, you know, there's a part of this that is really it's about opening your your heart to awe, right, yeah. to, to awe and wonder, um, which are pretty fundamental human emotions. Yeah, what do you mean about that? About how how have you been able to do that through science? Yeah, well, you know, science, you know, people don't really necessarily think about it this way. But in my first book, what I was really trying to emphasize was this idea that um, in some way, science is a gateway to, you know, a sense of human spirituality as much as anything else is because, um, you know, awe. there's there's a famous book by uh, Rudolf Otto, which is called The Idea of the Holy or The Idea of the Sacred. And what he was doing in that, this is, uh, you know, from 1916, and he was trying to really articulate very clearly what ex- what experiences we associate with spirituality or religiousness or the sacred or whatever word you want to use. And he identified awe as being one of these uh, essential experiences. And it's that sense of of being you know, coming up against the world, meeting the world uh, and, and your experience of it and being, you know, in a beautiful way, overwhelmed by it, overwhelmed by its majesty, overwhelmed by its depth and its power. And science, you know, what is science but a, a mechanism of doing that? You know, for all of its, uh, you know, grinding detail, and that's really what there's a lot of that going on in science, it's also a way of seeing the night sky more clearly. Or, you know, you're walking down the street and you see, an, you know, an anthill, and if you stop, and really pay attention, you know, that is also a gateway to a deeper experience of the world. So, you know, science is about paying attention and no, you cannot live a more deeply lived life without paying attention. So they're, they're, you know, they're one and the same. It's so true. And if you will share with our audience, what are your, what is your spiritual stance of meaning behind of, of religion? What is, what is your stance? Well, you know, I would consider myself an atheist in the mm-hmm. sense that I'm atheistic. You know, the idea as a scientist, you know, as a physicist, the idea that there's, you know, some that there's a conscious being, super being that is making decisions, you know, like this year, the Yankees, next year, the Red Sox, <laughs> never, ever the Mets, you know, <laughs> is, uh, you know, that just doesn't make sense to me. But, um, you know, I take sacredness 
seriously in the sense that, you know, so one of the, I really like the word sacred because it's really not, people think like, oh, it's sacred, it's associated with the Catholic church or something. But actually the word sacred comes from Sacer, which is about Roman temple architecture. And it was the Sacer was the inside of the temple. And inside the temple, you had to behave differently in the sense of you had to have a different attentiveness than outside in the profanum. The profanum was the region outside, you know, the, the, the outer regions where you could sell your walnuts, or your Grateful Dead t-shirts. You know, so that's, that's where the sacred and the profane come from. They're, they're, they're about sort of the attitude you bring when you're in these different places. And so, you know, to, uh, to me, there is absolutely a sense, a sacredness is a, is a, is a sense of the world that comes to us. And so, you know, I've been doing, um, contemplative practice, uh, you know, through Buddhism, my, you know, yeah, entirely through Buddh- you know, Buddhist practice, different kinds of Buddhist practice for 30 years. And, um, you know, I think what I'm interested there, you know, in practice is to, you know, see more deeply what is at the root of attention. What is this process of being? That we're all part of. And so for you, it's a way of being in the world. It's a way that you experience and interact with the world, but it is not something that you believe that the world is interacting back with you, or is it? Yeah, it, you know, I mean, well, in some sense, I don't, you know, this idea of what I would really be interested in in spiritual pride and contemplative practice is to get away from those, that distinction you just made, I think is artificial, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's sort of like, Oh, there's me and there's that yep. and there's this and there's that. And there's, you know, and those distinctions, much of the point of all contemplative practice, no matter what tradition you're coming from is to sort of see what happens, what's going on before those distinctions are made. Right. What do you know? What do you mean? Well, the distinctions between self and other, between the world and me, you know, that, that, that distinction, that's a bunch of ideas that I have. I have a bunch of, you know, that's an idea about the world. In, in the book, what I really emphasized in, uh, in my book was I was starting with, um, William James, the great American philosopher and, uh, you know, the really in many ways the founder of psychology. Um, you know, he, his book was called The Varieties of Religious Experience. And the emphasis for me is on experience. Mm. Experience or the verb to be is irreducible for me. You can't take that and then break it into any smaller chunks. Um, experience is sort of that from which everything else, every distinction we make begins. And so what I'm interested in particular from on a philosophical level of, you know, and in, in the, in the practice, right? In the mm-hmm. practice, of uh, of contemplative practice is um that active verb of being before the distinctions between this and that self and other up and down are made got it because in that contemplative practice it is all there at at once with where you are is that what you mean well that's what the attempt is right yeah. that's the claim that's yeah. the you know and um you know and i got to say after you know, the thing I think it's beautiful about contemplative practice and the thing, you know, I was sort of been beginning to be willing to talk to, you know, my colleagues about it's just the idea that there's a certain way that this is it's it's not an, it's not science. Right. What, what Buddha was doing wasn't science, but it was empirical, at least in the sense of like, you know, there's a lot of people who've done it. They've left records and instructions for what they they've done. Yep, yep. And then the idea is, well, if you do it you know, then you should get, you should have somewhat reproducible results. Now, the problem, of course, is it's subjective, not objective, right? Yes. When I do an experiment on a tabletop, I've got a ruler and a clock. And, you know, if I measure this event happening at 9.8 seconds, I should expect everybody to get it 9.8 seconds. But for subjective experience, you know, when I'm, you know, sitting in contemplative practice after four hours, 
you know, how do I really know I'm having the same experience of, the, you know, of Dogen, the 13th century Zen master who, you know, I've read a lot. So, you know, th- that's where some of the, that's where the interesting questions are. But I think absolutely there's a there's a level at which, you know, what I read in Dogen from the 13th century, I sort of have like, oh, I'm having an experience that seems like that. Right. right? It's in the realm of it. There's there's familiarity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. OK. Um, now, one of the things that you and I talked about in the pre-interview uh, is this idea of how sort of what I call it um, pseudoscience or has talked about what they've done with quantum mechanics right. and that uh, that you want to talk about. And I think. I would love to hear from your perspective. How have we been, how has that world, the Deepak Chopra of the world, um, I think you had mentioned, been getting it wrong? Yeah, well, I think there's this, you know, this thing happened in the late 80s, or sorry, or late 70s, early 80s. There were a couple of books published, uh, like the Tao of Physics. And, yes. um, and uh, what was the other one? The, um, the Dancing Wooly Masters, which yeah. claimed that quantum physics was recovering the worldview or the perspective of Eastern philosophies, mm-hmm. Buddhism. And, and, and um, you know, in some ways, those guys could be forgiven. It was an early time. You know, we were coming out of the hippie era. <laughs> but, you know, it was it was it, and it got picked up. Right. So the whole New Age movement sort of picked this up so that, you know, and then Deepak Dropper writes his book about quantum healing and you hear quantum this and quantum that. And there's this idea that, like, you know, somehow uh, quantum mechanics shows us that we're all connected or that there's life after death or whatever your favorite, you know, sort of earthy crunchy thing is. And um as earthy crunchy as I may be sometimes, <laughs> that is just a load of crap, you know? Quantum mechanics says nothing of the sort. And it's it's damaging in two ways, I think, this kind of, you know, quantum spirituality. One is, first of all, you know, if you want to pursue Buddhism or whatever, you know, or, or, or yoga or, you know, or meditative Christianity, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you don't need quantum mechanics. You don't need to justify it by saying, hey, quantum mechanics shows it's true, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the purpose of spirit, of a spiritual practice, if that's what you're into, is first of all to open the heart and, and, and open compassion and to live more deeply. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and your own experiences should be enough. You don't need to sort of like, you know, lean on science to sort of feel justified in it. And on the other hand, you know, quantum, here's the thing about quantum mechanics. The power and the beauty of quantum mechanics is, is A, it's incredible precision at articulating a, uh, a description of the subatomic world and showing us aspects of the world that were, you know, just unimaginable. And B, here's the really cool thing. Quantum mechanics doesn't tell us what it means. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so things like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and, you know, particles being two places at once. All of that is true. Uh, but what we what we don't have in quantum mechanics is an interpretation uh, that we've all agreed on. Right. So there's like there's probably 30 or 40 different interpretations of the mathematics of quantum mechanics. And some of them sound can sound very Buddhist. Yeah. <laughs> OK. And yeah. some of them, you know, your average new age person would be like, oh, I don't want that. You know, that's boring <laughs> or that's statistics or that's. And, you know, the problem is right now is that after 100 years, we still don't know which of those are true. We don't know. And, you know, we just don't. And that's the amazing thing. Quantum mechanics has taken us to the edge of our old conception of the world, yes. which was that the world was, you know, purely mechanistic. And it was, you know, everything basically atoms were just little billiard balls banging into each other. So it takes us it's shown us that well, that's not the way the world looks like on a fundamental level. 
but it doesn't really tell us what, you know, what to replace it with. And so when people like, you know, Deepak Chopra are saying, oh, you know, quantum mechanics shows us it's all connected. They're choosing one interpretation out of 50 and saying, oh, that's absolutely the interpretation. And that's as bad as, you know, sometimes when I argue with people who choose some of these other interpretations, uh, there's something called the many worlds interpretation that every time a quantum event happens, the world splits off into, you know, an infinite number of copies of itself. Um, you know, uh, people who are who are saying, no, that's the correct interpretation. It's the same problem. There's we just don't know which one is correct. So it's really, you know, the problem here is that people are are choosing their own bias. Mm. And that, you know, the one thing about science that science teaches you is that if you and I think and I think this is true of contemplative practice. I think this is true of any absolute true pursuit of the truth is you should be real. Anything you hope to be true is what you should be most suspicious of. What do you mean by that? Because the thing, you know, the, the world, whether it's the world of atoms and, you know, uh, electromagnetic waves or the world of the interactions between, you know, human beings or the, the things that we are, you know, that we most want to be true are the things that we're most going to be biased uh, mm. to think that are true even when they're not. I see what right? you're saying. Yeah, we'll be blinded by it. We won't we'll see the whole truth. It. You know, and science, I think any pursuit of the truth, whether it's science or, or spiritual, you know, a spiritual practice, you know, they're going to demand things of you. They're going to demand that you change, you know, they're going to demand that you change your views, right? I mean, you know, the people I know who've been very authentic in living their lives through, you know, what they would consider a spiritual practice, even if it's some kind of like spiritual atheism, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that they really, you know, they get taken, they may, they may be forced to be more compassionate than they ever thought they would have to be in a way that actually hurts, you know, right? in a way that really challenges themselves, you know, and, and, you know, often in one of the, the hallmarks of a spiritual practice is the loss of self, you know, yeah. is being, is coming to understand that this thing you cherish so much is yourself as the self, you know, it's kind of an illusion and, you know, letting go of that can be very painful. So, you know, you should be, you, if be you're open to that, be open to being, yeah. And you should be open to being wrong. Wrong. And non-attachment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You should not be attached to the things that you think are true, you know, but be, but be true to the path. You know, if you're on this path, where is it going to lead you? You know, if you're doing it with authenticity, you know, that's what science is about. You know, I may, it may be that the, the, the it may be that in 10 years, the, the interpretation of quantum mechanics that I hate the most yep. is going to be the one that, that gets validated. There's some experimental validation for, it. and then I've got to be like, well, what am I going to do now? <laughs> okay. Let me, let me ask you this. If Deepak Chopra, and I'm only choosing him because it's the right. most famous example, right? If Deepak Chopra presented his information in a way to say, this is one possibility of the interpretation of quantum mechanics, would you feel better? Yeah, sure, sure. If he was, if that's what he started with, mm -hmm. you know, and, and stayed to that, but instead, you know, it's always, this is what quantum mechanics shows us. So it's not that he's wrong. It's that he is, he is, uh, there is a one in 50 chance. I'm, of course, I'm just assigning a random number to this, right? There's a one in 50 chance that he's wrong and you wish that he would position it that way. It might. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it means that, 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 yeah. And that's quite, and also though, I would also say that by, by being so strident in his uh, accepting one interpretation, he also then starts taking it in places that are probably, you know, that are, that, that may be fundamentally wrong, even if, it, even if he was starting with the, 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 an interpretation that was correct. Mm, got it. Okay. Yeah. So, so in, in that, you know, I, as I talked about before, again, in our pre-interview, you wrote this article called Was Einstein Wrong? And right. it was all about space time in this book that you recently read. Will you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so this goes back, this is an interesting point about the relationship between science and philosophy. And, you know, yeah. it's a, 
So, so um, this is a beautiful book uh, called The Physicist and the Philosopher by Jemina uh, Canales. Um, and she's a historian slash philosopher of science. And what it was about, it was about this very famous meeting between Einstein and the philosopher Bergson uh, that occurred, I think, around 1920 or so. And the, the, the real crux of this issue and this debate between them was that Bergson was a philosopher uh, who was particularly interested in time and that his when, to call him a philosopher of time wouldn't really do justice to what he was trying to do. He was trying to understand human experience. He was trying to understand the totality of being human in a way that um, was was not going to be necessarily amenable to scientific uh, reductionism. Okay, right. The, the, yeah. you know, sort of the, for him, there was there was a, a there was a wholeness about being human that. You know, making measurements uh, was just not going to corral in some sense. And so Einstein, of course, had developed this incredibly powerful theory of uh, of general relativity, which was all about time and about how the different measurements of time change depending on how the observer uh, moves. Um, and so, you know, it was it was a theory about a fundamental theory about the nature of time in the universe. Mm-hmm. And what Bergson said is like, look, that's totally, you know, everything you're saying is totally true. It is completely right. It is. But it's a theory of clocks and a theory of clocks is not does not exhaust our questions about time. There, there are aspects about time that are not. I mean, and this is really where the debate comes that are not amenable necessarily to the kind of measurement oriented empirical uh, uh reduction that that science is best at and so this was there's there's fierce battle between you know because Bergson at the time Bergson was more famous than Einstein oh huh. much more so and huh. so Bergson uh and so this battle happened between Bergson and his followers and Einstein and his followers and of course you know Einstein was right about what Einstein was right about uh, and pretty much Einstein, you know, the, why this, this debate is important because what happened in it was the, the, you know, Einstein won in, yeah. in the sense of Einstein's perspective won because there's a moment in the debate where Einstein says to Bergson, there is no, there, there, the, there is no philosopher's time. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, the kind of time you're talking about doesn't exist. There's only the time of the physicists. And then the, 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 the psychological time of perception, you know, that has to do with neurons and such. And I think that's what, and so, you know, uh, what happened, of course, as we know in society is in some sense, the, 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 the scientific time we think of as being the only time, yeah. right? That, yeah. that, so, so that, you know, what's interesting about this book and what, what the issue that she was raising, the author was raising was, you know, is there more? Is there another way of thinking about time or thinking about it's more about than time. It's about experience. It's about the verb to be that I was talking about before. And I, you know, I'm not necessarily a giant fan of what Bergson himself was saying, but I am very interested and I'm not sure what the answer is, but I am very interested in this idea of where physics and science, which I am devoted to, yeah. uh, is situated in the totality of human being. What do you that- mean? No. What do you mean by that? Well, because, you know, again, for me, experience is fundamental, yes, right? Experience yeah. is irreducible. I can't, I can't sort of take experience and put it in a box and put it somewhere else and then try and look at it objectively. Right. Because any objectivity comes out of first being an experiencing subject. Yes. Right. Yes. So that's why, you know, that's one of the reasons why contemplative practice is interesting to me because it's, I get, 
you know, I get to try and have a deeper experience of my own subjectivity, right? I try to get to probe around in being a subject in the way I could, you know, sort of probe around with a box of electrons. So, um, you know, we're used to this idea of object- objectivity, right? Objectivity is a great idea. <laughs> uh, but it, for me, I think it's, uh, I've, you know, I didn't used to think this. It's been, you know, over, over time I've come to it that objective, ob- objectivity is a very powerful, um, story that we tell ourselves, right? And it's in some sense, I want to be very careful when I say this. It's a myth in the sense that it's a story we tell ourselves that has great power because it allows us to do great things. But ultimately, nobody ever has an experience of the objective world. Right. Right. Because you're intrinsically, whatever you're experiencing is what you, you cannot separate yourself. Exactly. Yeah. All of us, there's no, you know, you know, we're all seeing out of our two eyes. Yes. Right. So yes. If I said, oh, I say, imagine God, the God's eye view of the earth. <laughs> right. right. You Would can't. You you basically, well, people would imagine like floating above the earth, looking down on it, right? Right. Which is another perspective. You're just substituting like the sort of, there's a great book written by Thomas Nagel, a great philosopher, and he calls it the view from nowhere, right? Mm. This idea that objectivity is the view from nowhere. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the mistakes in a some sense that we've made is to think that we could, you know, that, that, that we could get the absolute objective view. Objectivity is hugely power. An objective perspective is hugely powerful as a way of doing science. And science is hugely powerful for us to build a, a, a world where we can have shared knowledge, you know, which is hugely important for democracy, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but if we're asking ultimate questions, ultimate questions about the fundamental nature of ourselves and the world, I think there's a way in which we have to figure out how we have to figure out how to do this and and recognize that we can't take ourselves out of the picture. Well, I was just going to say then it then and this could take the conversation a whole other way and I know you're 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 tight on time, then it makes you think artificial intelligence. Will artificial intelligence then be able to discover something that we cannot? Well, that's going to be the fascinating thing is if we could ever if we could make something that was conscious, right? Right. right. You know? yeah. And it's more than just you know conscious. I don't even like the word consciousness. It's really about awareness. Mm-hmm. It's really about you know, you know, some root level of awareness of having or, or, or presence, you know, that's another word, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in some sense, one of the difficulties that like, you know, Bergson has when he's arguing with Einstein, and then there's other philosophers who I like a lot, the phenomenologists like Husserl and Heidegger, is, you know, you got to develop this other language to describe this. And in some sense, it's got to be a quasi poetic language, because you know, you're trying to jump into the circle, so to speak, of being, right? Yeah. If, if experience is fundamental and, and it's irreducible, then you've got to somehow, you know, create a language that allows you to uh, deal with its totality, yes, right? You yes. can't break it up into little pieces. And so, you know, so that that is sort of becomes the dilemma of sort of uh, thinking about it or describing it or coming up with, a you know, an articulate language for including it. So when I say what I'm interested in is how physics and science are situated in the totality of human, you know, experience. That's what I mean. Like they're clearly physics is awesome and powerful and it does amazing things. And it's telling us something true about the world, but below it is this irreducible, you know, experience, this irreducible awareness, which we can't separate ourselves from. And never will be able to. Right. Well, I I mean, I guess, right. I guess, you know, I mean, you know, but yes, it's certainly, it, you know, you know, if anybody's done it, I, it's hard to say, you know, because nobody, you know, they, they got to show me that they've done it. Right. You know, right. I, you 
Now, when you have de- practiced meditation, um, have you experienced the sense of being outside of yourself, of observing yourself? Have you experienced that in deep meditation? No, not really. That's not been, I've had, you know, I've had, you know, what I would consider very deep, you know, for me, really deep meditation is more a sense of, of, ooh, you know, of, of lack of distinction before, you know, of, as Dogen would say, the dropping of mind and body, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. this idea of being outside myself floating around, no, I've never had that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I was just wondering of that, of, you know, you hear about that. I haven't had that experience either. But I, you hear of people who do reach deep levels of meditation. And then I'm curious if you as a physicist have that, then what, how, how would one explain, right? What is that? Well, you know, again, this is like, um, you know, look, it's far be it from me to like decide what is possible in the world. Yeah. But I would say, <laughs> no. you know, the whole point of science is like, Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, right? So the idea, this is the same thing with, um, people and life and death, life after death experiences, right? Or near, sorry, near death experiences. Yes. Yeah. Right? So there's a huge literature on that. Yes. And of course, you know, everybody, again, this is about bias. You know, people would like there to be life after death, you know, but you know, when you, when you look at the studies, when you look at really, you know, the most detailed in-depth studies, what you find is it can just, those experiences can just as easily be interpreted interpreted as the mechanic, that's the wrong word, as, as the, as the dynamics of the brain booting off, you know, shutting down and booting back up, you know, as they are of, you know, experiences of, you know, cosmic other worlds. So, you know. Although what if you take like, um, Dr. Eben Alexander, whose brain was right by all accounts, but that's always the question by all accounts, right? We don't, you know, when you, you know, when you really look at the literature, we don't have probes. You can't, you know, it's not like there's a probe in the guy's brain touching every neuron. So you don't have, it's like about resolution, right? Mm-hmm. If I take a picture of something with a crappy digital camera, right? Okay, it, yeah. well, the, the image is all little blocks, right? Right. Our understanding of the brain and the dynamics of the brain, that's where it is. We don't have this like super high, you don't, you don't have HD TV of what's going on in the brain, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So we can't say that the brain was totally dead. So we can't? I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what technology was no, there, right? we can't. So, you know, we, we've done amazing, like those fMRI studies, right. all that stuff. That stuff is awesome, but if you actually look at like the time resolution, how many slices of time they get, or the spatial resolution, it is, you know, compared to the fundamental units, which are neurons, it's huge. It's like, you know, it's like taking a picture of America and, you know, now again, I'm not sure about the details of this, but like having, you know, the resolution, the size of, you know, a whole city blocks, you don't know what's going on inside the houses, you know, it's probably worse than that, you know? I mean, so my takeaway from all of this is... Which is what's so wonderful, which is wonderful about this conversation is that we just, we don't know, right? And and that's what you're saying. I don't, you don't know for sure one way or another. Exactly. And so making claims from, you know, like if people want to believe there's life after death, right? I'm, you know, I'm on the record as being an agnostic about this and I've gotten in trouble with, (laughs) um, uh, with other scientists. And all I'm saying is like, look, you know, I have no idea what happens after you die. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying one way or the other because I got no data, you know, and as far as I'm concerned, nobody has any data. So to sort of take a position, a strident position one way or the other is just anti-scientific as far as I'm concerned, you know. Yeah. So if people want to have those beliefs, you know, I'm not going to tell you not to have them. I'm just saying that there's, you know, you don't have the kind of proof you're looking for from science for their existence. And you're also saying that you don't need the proof in order to have an experience within yourself of whatever it is. Yeah, uh, this, or yeah. 
Um, you know, the thing about science is it's public knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if I tell you that I saw a UFO yesterday and they took me up to, you know, Aldebaran and, you know, read poetry to me, you know, you can't tell me it didn't happen. You know, I mean, I I can't, you know, if I don't have any proof, I can't prove it happened. But I mean, all I'm saying is that, you know, the purpose of science is public knowledge, you know, and so people can believe whatever they want. And if they had experiences, they can interpret it however they want. But, you know, if they, so, so, you know, I can't, I can't tell somebody absolutely you did not have that experience, right? right? Because right. I, I just wasn't there. On the other hand, you know, if you want to claim that you, that what did happen to you, you know, was absolutely true and exists out in the world, then the onus is on you to, you know, sort of prove it. Yeah. Scientifically. Prove it. Yeah. In some way, you know, like with UFOs, it's always people, you know, I get into these arguments with people about UFOs. I'm like, look, until it lands on the, you know, the White House lawn <laughs> and go and shakes Obama's hand, like, come on, give me a break, you know? <laughs> until then. Until yes. then. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and insight. And I love that you are so open to the discussion and are able to explain science in a way that's so digestible and fascinating and the work you do. So where can people find out more about you? Uh, well, I have a website. I think if they just Google Adam Frank, okay. I've got my website. I think it's adamfrankscience.com. I also run, um, I'm a co-founder of NPR's uh, 13.7 Cosmos and Culture blog. Great. So uh, that every day, one of our, we have five scientists who publish on everything about science and culture. Um, so they should go to that. And if they just, if they just typed in uh, 13.7 NPR, you know, Google search it, they'll find it. It's a great blog. I follow it. It's awesome. Oh, good. Yes. Good. All right. Thank you, Adam, so much. Really appreciate you being here and have a great rest of the day. Oh, thank you. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. And I would love to continue the conversation with each of you over at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com backslash cosmos in you or our Twitter page. The Twitter handle also is cosmos in you. And of course, at our website, cosmos in Again, thank you so much for listening in. I'm so grateful to each of you to be able to share this shared passion and look forward to seeing you next time.